0: Good morning. We have three readings today. Uh, The first reading from Proverbs chapter 26, 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I'm just the reader. Chapter 18, verse one and two. "Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinions. Ex- his opinion. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, thank you, Nick. <laughs> well, good morning, redemption. Glad to see you all here. Uh, very excited about the baptisms after this service. A uh, couple of uh, just notes about that. Um, if you have children in um, children's ministry, if uh, we're going to do just one song after the sermon, uh, if you would, after you take communion, if you would go ahead and and head out to children's ministry to grab your children. Um, and do not leave your children in during the baptisms because we would really like the volunteers also to be able to come to the baptisms. And then if you're getting baptized, there's a number of you. Uh, maybe you also come forward and, and receive communion and then and then head to uh, wherever you're going to change, if you're going to change. Some of you, I know, came already dressed, uh, ready to be uh, ready to get a little bit of we- a little bit wet. So um, anyway, if we could do that, uh, if you're new here, my name is Frank, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are very glad that you are here. Uh, we're taking seven weeks to just do some proverbs. Um, we've, uh, we've looked at kind of introducing the notion of the book of Proverbs the last two weeks. and these next five weeks we're getting into some specifics. And today, if you hadn't noticed from the reading, we're going to talk about self-control and anger. Uh, But before we get to that, we also decided that during this seven-week series on Proverbs, we're also going to, before we get into the sermon, we're going to read a psalm or a portion of a psalm and not have any commentary on the psalm, but rather uh, allow the Holy Spirit to uh, wash over uh, everybody as we read the word together and and to allow the Holy Spirit to just apply it uh, to your heart and to your life today. Uh, Psalms are incredibly relevant they're, they're thousands of years old, but they are still incredibly relevant to us today. God's word uh, is not timeless. And, and as, you, as we read through these psalms, you are hearing things. These are prayers. They're songs and they're prayers. But you're hearing things that you know that you can apply to your life. Uh, this morning, we're going to read the first 26 uh, verses of Psalm 73, which is one psalm that has just, over the years, has captured uh, my heart. It's a song of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we, first of all, reflect on this psalm, and second, begin to look at your word in Proverbs, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth and to your goodness and to your gospel. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, please fill us and give us understanding. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, humans have always had a challenge with anger. I think we can state that as as truth. And today is certainly no different. I saw this tweet a couple of days ago and thought it was apropos. This is from G.K. Chesterton. It's interesting, he died in the 1930s, but he still has a Twitter account that's active. (laughs) But about 100 years ago, he wrote this. We shall soon be in a world in which people will hang a man For maddening a mob with the news that grass is green. Just stating the truth can get us into trouble today with other people. It seems to me that it's gotten a little bit worse. And consider the passages that the Bible has devoted to anger. There there, there are verses and passages all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul is saying that anger is not necessarily always bad, but there's a type of anger that that is inspired by God in the Spirit, and that's the one that we should engage in, one that, that, that we react to with calm clarity where we uh, fight for injustice, but the rest of it, this man-made anger, which is the vast majority of the anger that you and I all engage in, um, that isn't helpful. That's the malice and the slander and the clamor and bitterness. James chapter 1, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not quick in your spirit to become anger, angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. We could go on and on and on with these verses, verses but you get the idea. The sad truth is, is that all current research, I've been reading so much about this lately, books and essays, and all the current research indicates that we now live in the most polarized era in the history of our nation, uh, and I remember the late 70s, and it was really polarized then. But now we have the Internet and social media, which has only exacerbated the problem. It was it was almost as bad back then, I remember, but it's it is, I think, worse now. And the challenge is that so many of us, myself included, we have the tendency to react without filters. We don't monitor, we don't think, we don't exercise a fruit of the Spirit, which would be self-control. And, and, and how we react is usually immediately with self-righteous indignation rather than prayerful, empathetic responses. Many times we shouldn't even respond in the first place. Uh, I, I would say that right now, you, you take that verse out of James, I would say that today most people want uh, most, to most speak first and listen never. And listen never. And this is true in all contexts. It's true in our families. Do a lot of counseling and shepherding in that area. It's true there. It's it's true in in marriages. It's true in churches. It's true at work. But it's especially true, of course, in in digital communication. I want to take just a minute to talk about some of the challenges of human communication in the context that we're in today. Uh, First of all, um, you and I should understand that we now live in what is known as a receiver oriented communication culture. Now, I want that to sink in a second. We live in a receiver oriented communication culture. What that means is that when you and I communicate, when we send out a message, either in interpersonal communication, conversation, or uh, in a memo, or through digital media, emails, or through social media, posting on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, what we have to understand is that the way our culture works is that once you have released that message, you're the sender of the message, you have now lost control of the meaning, intent, and interpretation of that message. And I know many of you right now are saying, that's not fair. Doesn't matter. That's the communication culture you and I live in. And all of us have been subject to this, haven't we? Haven't you you sent out a message thinking this will be wonderful? And somebody, it just seems like almost on purpose, misinterprets it and gets angry. And then you say, if that wasn't what I meant, that's not what I intended. Doesn't matter. We need to think really hard. Let me tell you something. On Sunday morning I preach every Sunday morning and I work for hours trying to make sure that what I say is received with the intent in which it was sent Hardly ever works it seems <laughs> even with the Holy Spirit available it's it's it, here here you go this is my experience somebody will walk up to me and they will say oh pastor Frank When you said this, blah, 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 that, oh, it was just so wonderful and so true, and and, and it just, it meant so much to me, and I'm thinking, I never said that, but thank God the Holy Spirit applied something to your heart, and of course, there are people who will come up to me or email me later and say, you know, when you said this in your sermon, I was really offended, and I don't think you have any right to say something like that. And then I'll go back and I'll listen to the podcast just to make sure I didn't slip something in there. I know what I, whatever I was accused of saying wasn't in my notes, but then I'll listen to the podcast. It's nowhere there. But somehow that got applied to the person's heart. This is the culture we live in. It's not fair. It doesn't matter. You can't change it by whining how unfair it is. Here's the second thing. We also have something called the disinhibition effect. The disinhibition effect. Here's what the disinhibition effect tells us. Anytime there is a screen mediating our communication with other people, our inhibitions are reduced or non-existent. The minute we communicate through a screen, all our filters are off. And we say things through screens that we would never, ever, 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 ever say to somebody in person, but we're perfectly willing to do them through screens. That's called the disinhibition effect. And you see it everywhere on the internet. The internet has made so many things so much better, but this is one thing that it's made much worse. And all of us have been uh, uh, participants in that, and all of us have experienced that as well. And that leads into the reason for it, communication on the internet, digital communication, cellular communication is decontextualized and disembodied. A lot of research has been done about this. When you're not in physical proximity with the person that you are speaking with, it's almost as if that person doesn't exist. One researcher, Tony Reinke, says that it's almost like you're just talking to yourself, and you'll say things to yourself that you'll never say out loud, but you say them through digital communication because it feels like you're just talking to yourself, and that gets us into trouble. When we communicate, with a lack of relationship, which a lot of digital communication is, uh, with a lack of nonverbal communication accompanying it, especially the nonverbal aspects of verbal communication, such as rate, pitch, tone, and volume, when that isn't available to us, other than caps and emoticons, which don't really substitute that well. When we uh, communicate uh, without a physiological exchange with the person, you, you, you you have no idea how important it is that Tim and I, when we communicate together, there is actually a physiological exchange going on um, that, that subconsciously, unconsciously registers with us, and it helps to uh, affect the tone of how we communicate with each other. You don't, you don't get that through a screen. And, and, and then the fact that being in a physical context, being in an actual physical context, when we communicate Uh, On the internet, we are communicating in space. There's no physical context, but when you meet somebody at the Henry or at Lucy's to have a conversation, there's a physical context there that demands, demands that you are going to change how you communicate and make it appropriate that it's going to fit the decorum, which I would say is all good stuff. (laughs) It's all good stuff. Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, says this. He says, one of the things that decontextualized de- and disembodied communication has done is that it has just proven how much we really are sinners. Because that's our hearts coming out. That's our hearts coming out. Uh, former Gawker journalist Sam Biddle talked about the challenge of disembodied decontextualized digital communication, and his entire life is digital communication, he writes this, jokes are complicated, context is hard, but rage is easy, and it creates traffic. You realize that when you rage online, somebody else might be benefiting from it economically? You ever thought about it that way? And then Jerry Seinfeld adds his two cents worth. Social media has made the world a more annoying place, and I did not think that was possible. (laughs) Most of those laughs were like older people. I don't know what's going on there, man. Now, anger in general. Let's look at these Proverbs verses again. I know that one, uh, 2119, you're all very anxious to get to. But here's 2621. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is, quarrel, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The problem with this is that so much of our anger is misplaced, it's used frivolously, it's spent on things, here you go, this is the biggest problem. If you think about some of the times, you're really mad, you're just so mad, and then a week later, you, you don't even remember what you were mad about. So so we spend so much time being angry at things that are perishing, that aren't worthwhile, that aren't worth the effort. And of course, sometimes we get anger. We get angry uh, in order to just hurt others. And this kind of anger, this quarreling that this verse talks about, which all of us, we have all participated in, can only build strife. It never builds unity. It never builds conciliation or empathy or understanding was once said, I don't know who said it, but I hear this every now and now and then. The challenges of engaging with a quarrelsome person is that it's like fighting with a pig. You'll both get dirty, but only one of you will like it. 21:19. <laughs> 19 This is our equal opportunity verse. We believe in affirmative action here. It is better to live in a desert, desert land with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Uh, that, those terms, quarrelsome and fretful there, means a person who is always contentious and has a short fuse. Somebody who's just a, a hair trigger, okay? And, and what Solomon is saying here, or the author of this proverb, is that it really just, it's just better to live in the wilderness than to have to be around a person like that. Because contentious, angry people are not seeking unity, contrary to what they might assert. Have you ever noticed that some of the angriest people say that what they're really trying to build is community? It never seems to work out that way, though. They're, they're the people who really enjoy the fight. They enjoy the drama. They enjoy the discord. And, and, and the interesting thing is, is you see in the Bible that righteous anger, the goal of righteous anger really is justice and peace. But the goal of quarrelsomeness is division and destruction. It's just never stated that way. And then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Um, this is kind of like the life verse of the Internet, to be honest with you. The, the, one of the challenges of the Internet, again, uh, Tony Reinke, uh writes uh, uh, extensively on this, about how it is so much easier on the Internet than in real life, in real life, uh, Um, relationships, to find people who agree with you in every aspect, and then we just go to those online communities, and we sit around and just talk to each other in these little echo chambers, and that's all we do, and anybody uh, who dares to challenge the way we think in these little online communities, we just exclude them, we we get rid of them, you're not going to be a part of us, and that's a problem. It's counterfeit community. It's not genuine community. Genuine community is iron sharpening iron. It's challenging. There's diversity. There's also no accountability in a community like that. The the communication scholar John Jeanette writes this, the Internet is where people want to have an opinion but not be held responsible for it. And and anger is not just outward. Um, What are we doing with it inwardly? Lots more Proverbs on that, but let let me take you to the New Testament book of wisdom, which is James. Let me just read through this. James has the longest contiguous portion in all of Scripture about anger and how we talk to each other. It's it's more than a chapter long. And just listen to what he says, starting in verse 3, chapter 1. Not many of you should be teachers. He starts by talking to leaders in the church. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Can I get an amen? For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, which doesn't exist other than Jesus, able also to bridle his whole body. Interesting use of the word bridle. Here we go. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. It's a small member of our body, yet it's the member of our body that gets us into the most trouble, right? Isn't it? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. We have circuses and we can get animals to do whatever we want them to do. We can train them, but we can't tame our tongue. We can't train our tongue Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There is a correlation between wisdom and being able to control our anger and our tongues. You know, self-control. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, I'm glad nobody in Arcadia has a problem with that. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Our wisdom should come always from above and not from the world. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now you see uh, what's going on. James is getting at the root of the problem. All of this outward expression of anger is really something that's going on inside of us. Jealousy, bitterness, selfish ambition but when but the wisdom of uh, from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you the problem is is coming from inside of us you desire and do not have so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What is it that you and I love and want, but we're not getting? And it causes us anger and bitterness and resentment. And here's the odd thing. How much of that stuff that we desire so deeply and so desperately do we not even deserve and we have no right to, and yet we want it? This is why we need to slow down, and we need to think. We need to have these filters. We need the wisdom of God in our lives. Perhaps this is the problem. I've heard this from several people. It really bothers me that God is in control, and I'm not. And that produces anger, and bitterness, and jealousy in people's hearts. Uh, One person uh, uh, wrote an essay for the Gospel Coalition a few years back, and wrote this, almost always, my anger is a result of God being in control and not me. I would prefer to be God, but you wouldn't prefer I was God, and vice versa. Isn't that ironic? I want to finish this morning 's message by going a little narrower for the next ten or fifteen minutes. I want to go a little narrow to one particular area. You heard a Yasu up here, totally unplanned on my part, talking about. So many divisions in the church, uh, ethnically and racially, there are a lot of divisions in the church. I want to talk about a division of another sort that that I see being played out in churches everywhere in the United States, a division. Uh, I've had the sense for the last several years that one of the greatest breakdowns in our culture today, and it's not just in the church, but we feel it in the church and we shouldn't, is a breakdown between the generations, and I know this gets a, a little bit muddy. I understand that, so I'm going to speak in some sweeping generalizations. But I will tell you that, in general, these things are true. Not just from my own observations, but in fact, we've had researchers looking into this. Uh, ben Sass, the historian Ben Sass, wrote a book published a few months ago, and I and I read it. Fantastic book. And he writes this, every study on this subject in the last 10 years shows a disturbing but ignored fact. We are now the most generationally segregated culture in history. Uh, Let me just let that sink in. We are now the most generationally segregated culture in history. And the research is unambiguous. It's not good for us. This segregation has led to a greater level of anxiety, depression, apathy, and inability to think about the past and future than we've ever seen before. That doesn't sound good. That's a challenge. That's a problem. The truth is, much of our dissonance and our angst and our antipathy today is born of this siloed world of generational passion. We all have passion, but it seems to be sort of confined to the generation the generations, I'm a boomer, and, and I'm a young boomer. Most boomers are older than me, and we, we have our passions, we have our hot buttons, and we have our concerns, and by golly, don't mess with those. And then there's the Gen Xers. They, they've been almost kind of forgotten, but they're still in there. They're that generation after the boomers, they're like 40 to 55, but they have their, their set of concerns and hot buttons and passions, and then there are the millennials. You knew I'd get to them, right? So millennials, about 24, 23 to 40 years old, 39, 40 years old, Uh, for at least the last five years, maybe even the last 10 years, millennials have been the sociological whipping post. Can I get an amen from a millennial out there? Some of it deserved, (laughs) but I will also tell you a lot of it, unfair, inappropriate, and uninformed. And who, who, is the, who are the ones that are mostly whipping up on the millennials? Boomers. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I know. Oh, no, no, no. I, I read a blog by a millennial who whips up on us too. Yeah. Anomaly. <laughs> really a boomer in disguise. But millennials have their own perspective on what is important and worth being passionate about. And surprise, it's different than boomers and Xers. Who would have thought that? Here's an example. Here's one that I've just seen played out over and over and over. Boomers tend to think that racism is pretty much over. Not worth discussing anymore. Took care of that. All done. All fixed. Okay? But not millennials. They know better. And And they experience it in different ways than boomers ever did. Boomers don't experience racism the way we used to. But that doesn't mean it doesn't still exist. It's different than it was. It's just different. And millennials experience it. In other words, here you go. The the experiences of the generations differ. But that doesn't make us right or wrong necessarily. But it sure seems to make us angry with each other. And critical of each other. We need to be quick to listen and slow to anger on both sides. Both sides. But also now, millennials, check this out. Many, by the way, who do believe they have it all figured out. You guys have a new challenge to contend with. It's the next generation, the Z generation. Some people are calling this generation the builders. You know why? They're going to be the builders generation. Here's why. Because... The builder generation, this younger generation, is looking at what the millennials have done to the world, and they're saying, we got to fix all that because they screwed everything up. <laughs> we need to rebuild everything. Isn't that just ironic? Isn't that fascinating? You realize, of course, that every generation ever believes that they're going to do it better than their parents and every generation has believed that they need to fix what their parents screwed up. Every generation. Every one of us. I used to look at my parents' generation and go, idiots. <laughs> and they would look at me and go, idiot. <laughs> and Every generation is sure that the next generation behind them is going to be the one that ruins the world. We're going to slip into eternity okay, but this is when the world is going to end. That generation right there, man. That's what they're saying, I'm telling you. That's what they're saying. Of course, in fixing the older generation, the zeal of the younger generation always makes new mistakes that the generation behind them will have to deal with. So in other words, here's what we all need. We all need humility. We desperately need the filling of the Holy Spirit to make us humble and gentle and be willing to listen. Anger gets expressed in the midst of pride, zeal, stubbornness, and ignorance. That's what happens. This self-righteous anger that we all express is always the result of pride mixed with zeal and stubbornness and ignorance. I've heard this saying before, I think it's applicable for the most part. I've never met a young person who is not arrogant, and I've never met an older person without regrets. And it's not that older persons are necessarily smarter or humbler, but they do have life experiences now. They have a bank of life experiences that have taught them that they're not so hot, if they're willing to learn. If they're willing to learn from those life experiences. Here's the problem. This is not the vision that God has for the church. All of this angst between the generations. It's not the vision. Nor is it the reality of the kingdom of God. You're gonna get to heaven and you're gonna be like, what, they're here, really? And they're gonna look at you and go, same thing. I, am I in the wrong place? (laughs) God's people are intergenerational and diverse. God's people are intergenerational and diverse. I see this all the time. I see a church with an average age of 68, and everybody in the church seems to think that's a good idea. Oh, they wish that they could have a younger person come in every now and then, but they dress funny, they talk funny, and certainly their music doesn't fit. And, and, and what they like is they like being around their doppelgangers. They, they don't want to be challenged in anything that's, that's uh, non-essential to the gospel. They don't like that at all. And I've literally heard, I've heard comments like this. If the Baptist hymnal was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. (laughs) If the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. But the same is true for newer churches where the youngest, where the oldest person in the church just had their first baby. Yeah, but it's such a cool church, man. It's got such a cool vibe, you know. You realize, of course, that as this young church ages, your coolness will change. Sooner than you think, you'll be driving minivans and fretting about your retirement accounts. Not me. No way. Cody, you got a minivan? Yeah. Swart, sw- did both of those things this <laughs> minivans, retirement accounts. Said he never would, would worry about those things. It's awesome watching Cody grow up. And he's going to kill me for saying that publicly. The funny thing is that also this younger church, pretty soon you'll be complaining about the music. I'm going to love that. That's going to be awesome. As as if the music in heaven is going to cater to any of our preferences. Have you ever thought about that? You're going to get to heaven, the new Jerusalem, and you're going to say, I'd like to speak to the worship leader. They're going to go, Elevator right back down, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> the desire of Jesus for his people is that we are called to seek. We are called to seek to understand each other. We are called to practice empathy. To see the other and to accept the reality of the other. Andrew Stanton, who is the chief screenwriter for Pixar and Disney, the, anima- the new animated stuff, so all the newer stuff, Brilliant guy. He says this. It's nearly impossible to hate someone once you sit down with them and hear their story. It's nearly impossible to hate someone once you sit down with them and hear their story. And I have found that to be true. I found that to be true. Uh, Here's a good rule, and I actually got this off of Twitter from another pastor. Empathize before you criticize. Empathize before you criticize. Uh, Jesus calls us to seek counsel about our blind self, too. You know, you and I operate with an open self, the self that we're willing to show everybody, and then we have a hidden self. That's kind of like maybe our favorite self. That's all the stuff we do in secret, okay? But we also have a blind self. Our blind self is what we don't know about ourselves, but everybody else seems to. And we need to be open to people letting us into that world. We need to do a better job with self-awareness. It's so important. We need to understand that our future selves are being developed right now. The number of people who I hear say things like, I don't have time for spiritual disciplines right now, I'll do that later when I have more time. Big mistake. You need to make time right now. Because if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it later. Who you are right now is going to become who you are. And by the way, it's not too late for any of us. I'm, this may sound a little self-serving. It's not meant to be. It's just an illustration that I happen to know really, really well. I am 58 years old, and in this last year, I have, I have committed myself totally to retool myself to meet the demands of a future reality. I am not going to coast. I am not going to settle in. I am not going to become complacent. I, I want to be a better preacher I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better shepherd. I want to be a better counselor. I'm not giving up on that. I want to be better in 10 years than I am right now. Even when I'm 80, if anybody will still hang around with me, I want to be better at doing this. And I think I'm called to that, and so are you. God calls us. He says, You're not done until you take your last breath. Keep pushing forward. Keep getting after it. It's one of the reasons. People say all the time, why do you teach communication at Paradise Alley Community College? This is one of the reasons why. I'm constantly challenged by the next generation to do it better, to engage them in new and different ways. It keeps me sharp. It's a wonderful thing to do. And Scripture calls us to it. Second Timothy, Paul writes this in chapter 2. And he's telling Timothy about being a pastor and a leader. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. How? Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way. The cross is where I find my identity and my future. I just want to keep going to the cross and keep begging the Holy Spirit to fill me. This series we did in Acts had a profound effect on how I understand the Holy Spirit. And I've been a Christian for 30 years. I just am desperate to be filled by by the Holy Spirit all the time and let him just take me to the cross every single day. I desire the Father to teach me his wisdom. I pray the resurrected Christ to direct my thoughts and my ways. And I'll tell you, the cross is where we find the greatest example of empathy ever. Jesus actually taking my place. Jesus taking your place. That's the gospel. I'm going to end with this quote. Michael Barone, who's an author and political scientist, does a great job in a September 2017 essay of kind of getting at what what I'm talking about here. Listen to this. As I prayerfully analyzed some of our nation's biggest problems, problems that cut across generational lines, it became clear that our greatest challenges are not just abortion and pornography and extreme debt and social injustice and family breakdown and compromise in the church. Instead, some of our greatest challenges are internal. Many of them trace back to the mindset that it's all about me. That's why the second chapter of my book, The second to the last chapter of my book is titled, The Universe Does Not Revolve Around Me. And that's why I also address the culpability of Christian leaders who have fed into this self-exalting mentality by preaching a what's-in-it-for-me gospel message, which is no gospel at all. There really is only one cure for this ill, and it is found in the Bible. The grace, words, example, and salvation of Jesus. That's the good news. The bad news, or should I say the sobering news, is that this cure is quite radical. How many will even dare try it? I personally hope that millions of Americans will make an effort to taste and see that God is good and God's ways are best. Yes, the radical Jesus-based cure to our self-centered narcissistic mentality is life-giving, liberating, and even culture-transforming. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God we do pray that we would hear your word, apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds, that we would be transformed. We would be transformed by how you renew us, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would lead, guide, and direct us. Lord God, give us humility, and God, I pray that we would be a picture of the new Jerusalem, that we would be intergenerational, that we would be multi-ethnic, that we would embrace cultures, and that we would seek to have the gospel redeem cultures and people. God, that's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.